What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This week on The Takeout, Pulitzer Prize-winning White House photographer Doug Mills of The New York Times. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host of the program. We're going to do something a little different this week, and it's going to be a little bit more difficult for our radio audience because it's going to be a visual arts kind of program built around someone who you probably haven't heard of, but someone whose pictures you've seen. I guarantee it. His name is Doug Mills. He works for the New York Times. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes as a photographer. He's kind of the dean of the White House Press Corps, and this is going to be a long-running conversation, not just about how to take good pictures, how to be a good reporter at the White House, what is your relationship as a photographer with the institution of the presidency, with individual presidents you cover, and how to think about all of those things under deadline pressure inside the tight confines of a White House. It's been said that Washington is a hard place for a photographer to work. A lot of podiums, a lot of curtains a lot of stationary, already well-known, established venues. What's the biggest challenge of being a creative and effective news photographer? Oh, there's a lot of, ch- I mean, you're right. It's, it's called the city with the velvet ropes. And we are known to have to work behind those constraints all the time, especially at the White House. Not so much at the Hill, but at the White House, yes. So it's a daily, you know, I think about a daily, every assignment that I go into, I'm trying to, be creative. I'm trying to do something different, even though I'm in the constraints of, you know, a 10 by 8 spot. And a place you've been a hundred times before. Exactly. And trying to do something different and trying to, you know, obviously first make the most important image that tells a story for that event. You know, if you're in the Oval Office for a signing, a bill signing or a speech or in the East Room or, you know, a Purple Heart or something like that being, you know, or a Medal of Freedom being awarded, you know, stuff like that has peak moments, just like in sports. And I'm always looking for those peak moments. And sometimes I'll take chances. And I think that's one of the things that I try and do now that I've been there for so long is take more chances. They're educated chances now. Yes, they are. And luckily, the New York Times allows me to do that. They give me the freedom to do that. There's never a question, oh, why didn't you do this or why did you do that? They give me the freedom to be creative. And that's, that's all you can ask for from a photographer is not to have somebody second guess what you're doing every day. And I try... Every day, every assignment, I think about it before I go in. I think about what the last picture I made in there. I think about the light. I think about trying to compose something that I normally would not. I always try and look for somebody who may not be, you know, the president may be the most important person in the room today or for the next five minutes, but there's somebody sitting along the wall or somebody in the background who's going to be really important in a couple days. And I'm always thinking about that. And that's one of the things that... I think really keeps you fresh. 
So your mentality going in is capture the day, but archive the moment. Exactly, yes, because moments at the White House live forever. And I think it's so important to not forget that, that never take anything for granted when you go through the doors there. I mean, every time I walk through the Northwest Gate, I think about what am I doing today? What's next? What, what unexpected, especially now in the Trump administration, it's, you know, we have so much access to President Trump. So therefore, you're always thinking about what could be, you know, okay, this, they're saying on the schedule, this is closed press. Oh, he's going to open this up. Probably going to open. Yeah, he's, he wants us in there for this. Or, you know, and so you're always, you know, you're always thinking ahead. And I think that's something I've learned from the people I watched growing up. You know, Bob Doherty from AP, you know, Ron Edmonds. Those people I look to, you know, and watch the, they, watch the way they work. And that really helped me think about looking ahead. So I want to give the audience a sense of how this works. You and I have walked into the Oval Office many times. When you walk into the Oval Office with all of us, you have maybe 20 seconds, maybe 30, maybe less than 10, to read that room, get your own internal geography, focus on the principal, which is the president, and then think about that archiving you might do after getting the money shot. How do you carry out that 10 to 20 to 30 seconds? It's really, as you said, walking through that door with your eyes wide open and thinking, okay, I'm thinking about it before I go in the Oval Office, what angle do I, do I want to go closer to the president? Do I want to, I want to go farther on the other side of the couch? Who is he meeting with? Who's in the, who do I think is going to be in the room? Is the vice president going to be in the room? Is, you know, the secretary of state? Who's going to be standing? National on? security advisor. Exactly. Chief Treasury of staff. Treasury secretary. All those people are around the and bubble. You've got to look and notice them in a split exactly. second. Exactly. And, but you always, I mean, I think when I go in, my eyes are, are dead on the president to find out first, sometimes you can read their moods right away, um, and then also scan the room. And there are a lot of times now that I can, I'm shooting with a Sony which has a LCD screen, I can pop that out and I can look, and while I'm looking at the president, I can peel around and look and scan the room. Oh, Jared Kushner's back here. Oh, Melania's over here. Ivanka's over there. Ivanka, somebody, you know, anybody else. Mulvaney's over there, Exactly, yep. And so that allows me to do that. And I'm always, you always have to be on your toes in there because at any moment he could gesture or say something that's really, really important. He can drive the markets. He can drive, you know, everything ends up in the Oval Office. No matter what issue it is, you know, it's an old cliche, but it ends up at the president's desk and he's usually going to be talking about it. Generally, do you feel you develop a relationship with each president you photograph? Absolutely. Yes, you absolutely Yes. From Ronald Reagan, who was the first president I covered, um, to, to Donald Trump. Same. I, I feel like I've gotten to know them. They know who I am, thankfully. I'm always very respectful of every president who's ever sat behind the desk. And I think that's the most important thing. I, I'm not in there. I go in there with an apolitical mind. I'm going in there to take pictures. I don't have an agenda. I'm trying to be fair. And that's my job. And Yes, you, you, you get into relationships with a president who maybe banter back and forth with you. Bush 41 did that. Bush 43 would always joke with me about things. Um, president Clinton did too. Um, president Trump does too. President Obama. So yeah, I mean, you, you, you definitely, you get to know them more than just going in to the Oval Office. Is there something that you have learned 
makes you appear less threatening to presidents than, say, someone like me or Ooh. a print reporter? I think so. I think, yes, because you're asking the tough questions. You're there to really, you know, ask the, what the American people want to know. And sometimes they don't want to give you an answer. And from a photographer's standpoint, sometimes we can be a fly on the wall. They forget about that we're in there. They don't think about the shutters or they don't hear the shutters. So they're more concerned about what you're asking them. And so when they start to gesture or to get frustrated or, you know, or to get upset or laugh or joke, then that they're not doing that, you know, to me, they're doing it at you, but I'm able to capture it. Have you ever photographed a president as image conscious as Donald Trump? Never. He is, I've always said that Barack Obama was the most photogenic, by far, by far. Donald Trump is the most iconic. No matter what part of his, his hands, his hair, his face, his jackets, his, you know, just Neckties. everything about him is easily recognizable. As soon as somebody looks at a picture from the back, a silhouette, you know, profile, you know, he just has this iconic stature about him. And it's, it's, it's great to be where I am right now because I'm witnessing history and he gives us so much access and, you know, I'm lucky to be in the spot I am because he makes for great pictures. Why does he make great pictures? The clothes he wears, you know, you can be outside and have a big black jacket on it. You can turn it, something that's front lit into a silhouette like this, or, you know, you, he can be on stage. His, obviously his hair, obviously just how big he is. You know, he's a big man. Everything about him, you know, from the 45 on his, you know, his shirt sleeve to you know, or the cuffs, you know, he's always wearing exotic, you know, cuffs on his shirt. Um, and just his eyes and just everything about him. On the other side of this break, we're going to have a more lengthy conversation with Doug about what it is, in his view, that makes President Trump iconic in terms of photography. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. You know, Doug Mills, Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, still photographer for the New York Times. To discuss this with him is not just about the day job. It's about what it has become for Doug and his relationship, if there is one, with President Trump. Because President Trump has singled out Doug Mills for what can I only describe as extraordinary praise. Praise he hasn't really showered on any other member of the press corps that covers the White House on a daily basis. And that is part of this story, not only on the high side with praise, but at the low side with the president's general criticism of the White House press corps and his specific denunciations of the New York Times. He's always struck me as, compared to other presidents I've covered, 
someone who wears his emotions much closer to the surface. He does. And he's not shy about letting you see them, revealing them, even peeling back the layers as his emotions become more overwrought in the moment. Absolutely, yeah. When, like I said, when you walk in the Oval Office, sometimes you can see what kind of mood he's in. Not that he's in a bad mood a lot, but if there's a lot of news going on and he's focused on making sure that he's going to let the reporters in the room know what's on his mind, we see, I see it immediately. I can see it in his hands. I've, I watch his hands a lot. I watch the way his feet are sitting in the, underneath the chair, sometimes in, sometimes out. Um, yeah, just little thing. He, he, his emotions are right out there. And he does not mind lashing out and getting into a banter with, you know, with reporters. I mean, the most amazing photo op I've ever been in, in the Oval Office, was with the, uh, the President of the United States, with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. I was there. I was asking most of the questions. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and that was the most amazing photo op. I mean, I thought, I felt uncomfortable because I thought at any moment we should be just leave this conversation because it's not something I've ever seen in 30 years I've been there. It's never seen anything like that. We shouldn't shut down the government over a dispute. And you want to shut it down. You keep talking about it. The last time, Chuck, you shut it down. No, no, no. But yet that's part of Donald Trump. He wants you... He wants to be transparent. He wants you to see everything. He doesn't care that the cameras are there. And so that's the wonderful thing about Even being. though, in retrospect, he walked into a trap in that Oval Absolutely. Office. He said, I'll own the shutdown. Yeah. And then he had to. Which he ultimately did. Yeah. But that played out all on, in, right before our very eyes. It was yeah. extraordinary for me, too. I had never seen something that was so clearly unrehearsed and the tactical decisions both Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and the president were trying to make in real time in each other's presence with all of us watching. Yeah, it was remarkable. And I was egging them on. Of course, that's your job. I mean, you were trying to get the story and asking them all difficult questions. And then to see Nancy Pelosi say, well, let's talk about this later. And he was like, no, no, no. We're We're talking about about it now. now. Right. And that's no, I mean, and it's also when you go into a cabinet room meeting with him. I mean, I've covered hundreds, probably thousands of cabinet room meetings and go in first 10 or 15 seconds. President speaks. Thank you very much. Maybe get a question in. You're out. Donald Trump, you're in there 90 minutes plus and you hear every member of the cabinet. You hear debates. You hear people get, you know, the president will lash out. It is Homeland Security, you know, director right there and say, I'm unhappy about this, and why is this going on? And those are things that you never heard before. That obviously makes it newsworthy. It makes it fascinating. Does it make it better? I think it does. It it certainly is, you know, when you talk about transparency, I think it lets the American people see what's actually happening in a cabinet room meeting. You know, and then you turn on C-SPAN, and there it is. The The whole meeting is not cut, nothing. It's just, it's all there, unedited. And I think that's, you know, and from a photographer's standpoint, right. I mean, that's a, that's a dream. And as I often tell people, it's more real than a reality show. It is. Yes, that is true. Because you can't believe some of the things that happen in them. Yes. He has identified you prominently, affectionately, mm-hmm. called you a genius. Yes. Yet he hates the New York Times. I know. How does that affect you? I've been, yes, the president's called me out a number of times. Positively. All positively, thankfully. Um, and I think because he thinks I'm fair. I mean, he, I have no axe to grind. I don't have an agenda. 
I'm not asking him questions. He's just looking at the pictures in the New York Times. He looks at my Twitter. He looks at my Instagram account. He looks at all that stuff. So, and he's image conscious. So even if there are bad images, you know, I think there have been a number of unflattering, some people would say, where he, maybe he likes it. Somebody on his staff said, oh, oh, that picture, I don't like that picture. I said, well, I gave a copy of it to the president, so maybe he wants it, you know, maybe he liked it. So therefore, you know, I, it, it's, it is uncomfortable, especially in front of a world leader like Kim Jong-un, to be called out and say, oh, this photographer's brilliant, you know, come over here and take a picture of us. One of the great photographers of the world. One of the- Uncomfortable, flattering, obviously flattering, but what, what can you, you know, what can you say? I mean, at that point, you're just doing your job. Yes, sir, thank you for, you know. Do you think he thinks of you as not part of the New York Times? Well, that's a great question. I don't know. I, I, I know he knows that I work for the New York Times because he yeah, is... We all know. Yeah, he is, he's mentioned that. He said one time to a number of world leaders in Canada, a G7 summit, uh, sitting next to um, Chancellor Merkel and um, Macron, sitting in between them, and I, somehow he got his eyes locked on me, and he said, oh, there, there's Doug Mills, a great photographer, one of the greatest in the world, Unfortunately, it works for the New York Times. So, you know, they got a big kick out of it. Obviously, the reporters got a kick out of it. I was um, flattered that he recognized me, but what, you know, I was disappointed that he, you know, kind of slandered the New York Times because obviously it's a, you know, it's a great place to work. And we have the hardest working reporters in the business and the most honest. And I think, that, you know, they cover every president the same way they cover Donald Trump. They ask the tough questions. All of us deal with this. I want to ask you how you deal with it. Generically, the president's attacks on the fourth estate. How do you feel about that? Uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, When he attacks us during a rally, um, which he frequently does. The failing New York Times. Newspapers going to hell. It's uncomfortable. You know, it disappoints me because all of us in the news business, we work our tails off. And I don't think anybody who covers the White House on a daily basis, any of the major news outlets, especially the New York Times, CBS, the Washington, nobody has an agenda to go after him. And nobody's writing fake news. Some of the times when we, you know, publish stories that he doesn't like, then he will accuse them of being fake. I don't think that's always the case. I don't think it's ever the case because um, just because it's not positive doesn't mean it's fake. And I think that upsets a lot of our reporters. Um, it upsets not only reporters who work at the New York Times, but people at the White House. Yes, it, it hurts. Yeah, I mean, I wish he didn't do it because um, I don't know of any reporter, and I certainly don't know of any photographer who are you know, putting out anything fake. You mentioned the rallies. How many have you been to? Mm. Donald Trump rallies a lot. I couldn't even... I've been to at least 80. 80, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't think I've been to 80, but I've probably been to over 50. Ever felt threatened? Yes. I have felt threatened, yes. And yet you and I both know he loves us. Yes. He would not go anywhere without us. Correct. That's true. And he loves, I mean, he loves having us around. And yes, there are people who have written fake news stories but to lump us all in and say they're all fake news, that bothers me. 
because he, you know, he knows, we all know, that we're not all there to write fake news. And there are people who have. And that's happened during every administration. And it's worth underscoring, I think, that I've never been around a president more frequently than I've been around President Trump. So for all of his denunciations, Correct. he is by far the most accessible day-to-day basis. Now, we don't have briefings anymore, but we see him almost every day. Exactly. And I've often said I'd rather take, I would always take the president over the press secretary any day. Any day, yes. And we, we, we as a group, the White House Press Corps, have more access to Donald Trump than we've had to any president since I've been there since Ron, you know, Ronald Reagan. That access is a distinctive part of the Trump presidency. It elevates his visibility and it elevates just how much the country hears from and about him. We're going to talk on the other side of this break about a very special photograph Doug Mills took not involving Donald Trump. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to this special episode of The Takeout. One of the great challenges of being a reporter or a photographer in Washington, D.C. is when there's a big story and everyone knows it's a big story, everybody's there. Key question, how do you professionally make your work distinctive? How do you make it stand out? Not just in the moment, but for all of history. Well, Doug Mills did that with a, photograph, with a photograph rather, of former FBI Director James Comey. It was when he was testifying before a Senate committee. And everyone else was crouched low, meaning the other photographers. Doug Mills found a way to get, not him, but his camera way up high and give a view of that scenario that captured not just Comey, but the drama all around it. Let's talk about some of your pictures. Sure. Tell me about this. Well, that, that's James Comey, former FBI director who uh, testified on Capitol Hill. And that hearing had been talked about since the day he was fired and uh, for months. And was it going to happen? Wasn't going to happen. Where, what room was it going to be? And then finally, when they announced it, I started thinking about, okay, what can we do? What, you know, so I sent a couple of emails to the Senate Press Photographers Gallery, the director there, and said, you know, can we do this? Can we do, you know, just thinking ahead. And then knowing how much interest there was, I mean, there were people lined up the day before for this hearing, but I just wanted to be able to give a bird's eye view to really show the readers how intense, and that he is gonna be the single focal point. And he is, you know, at the time that that hearing took place, he had all the answers. And he had answers that Republicans didn't wanna hear, and answers that some of the Democrats didn't want to hear. But he was the main, you know, story. And I was, so I put my camera on a monopod and ran it up as high as I could. And I stood in that position for probably 30 or 45 minutes before the hearing started because I knew exactly where I wanted to be. I went out and scoped out where he was going to be sitting in the desk. I pre-focused, I did a couple tests, and I didn't budge because there were, you know, 50 photographers there. Like a director, you blocked this scene. Exactly. I did, yeah. It, you Alfred I never Hitchcock. thought about it. Yes, I did. I didn't think about that going in, but that's exactly what I did because I really wanted to be able to show the entire arena, as you said, because it is. it was like a circus. I mean, it was like a, a sporting match. Because he is a focal point, but this also tells oh. a story. 
Yeah, all the people on the sidelines. You think it was like a football game or soccer match. This is either the goalie or the quarterback right there, and he is the most important person on the field. And therefore, but yet he has a lot of help. He had family. He had, you know, other lawyers. He had people who worked at the FBI. Former, you know, just so there are a lot of people on the fringe. And then with all the photographers around, you know, trying to get that one moment. And uh, it lined up a heck of a lot better than I thought it would. So we went back to the Senate hearing room to actually talk to Doug about the mechanics of this moment and how he had to think so many things through to not just imagine what it would be like, but imagine how to execute in that moment, at that time, and capture the drama. So this is Heart 216. A lot of big hearings occur here. Challenges or opportunities in this room? Oh, lots of opportunities. I mean, there's challenges in every assignment, but this has so many opportunities. You have a window in the back. You have two side spots on each side. The lighting is amazing in this room. There's always, it's always packed with people, reporters, lawyers. Yeah, there's so many opportunities in here. The senators make sure the lighting is very good here, I They do. They do. Yeah, they, they are fully aware that everything is lit perfectly for them and for the subject. And we, let's walk around here because that famous Comey picture, he would have been approximately here. Correct, yes. Walk me through how you set that up. I looked at where his chair was, looked at where the microphone was, and wanted to make sure I was dead on center. And, um, but not here. You wanted it up yes, here? Yes, I wanted it up there. I want that bird's eye view just to really bring the readers in so they can see what it's like and the, the impact, the drama of everybody being around and um, just trying to let everybody know how important it was. Show us how you did that. So uh, take the camera. I have a monopod here. I have a, a trigger here, a cord that I've homemade. And uh, I basically extend the, the monopod out. It's a Gitzo monopod, so I get it out as far as I can. And then I can lift the screen back so I can see. What, and I'll probably do it. I would do a test. I would pre-focus down here and then guesstimate how much my distance and put it up and then waited for him to come in and the whole time once I got where I wanted I just started firing and you have a sense of what's in your viewfinder I do. but you don't know absolutely what's not in your absolutely viewfinder. not at all yeah not at all but I know my ballpark I know the horizon and I can see it I know where he's sitting and uh, I could fire away and when you're doing this, you realize you're the only person up there. Everyone else is down Correct. here. Correct, yeah. And you're thinking what? I'm thinking I hope it works. I hope it's sharp. <laughs> and uh, if it is, it'll be great. And, you know, it wasn't until I brought it down, once they banged the gavel, and all the still photographers have to go back to the position, that I could quickly look at it. I was like, oh, all right, it's there. And were the senators seated when you were oh, standing yeah. in front of them? Yes, yes. Did they object? Oh, not at all. Nobody, I mean, someone asked, what's he doing? You know, I think Senator Leahy, who is a avid photographer. I have, yes, he is a real shutterbug. He, he loves is. to take amateur photography, uh, photographs rather. Yes, he is, uh, he's somebody who understands, so I'm sure. And he, he has sent me emails before, you know, about pictures I've taken. So he definitely gets what I do also. Do you feel something? Do you feel the room? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You feel when that it, tension? Yeah, you, you, it's like being at a sporting event. You, you get juiced up about it. The, you know, as soon as the witness comes in, whether they come in from the back or come in behind the senators and walk over, as soon as that happens, everybody's adrenaline gets up. I'm, mine's up. I'm watching. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. 
and I'm trying to find, you know, some of the times I'm looking through the viewfinder at the same time I'm looking at him directly. Once I've got it centered, and nowhere, then I'm looking for a moment. I'm waiting for him to either, you know, look down, look up. He may even look up. One time I did it during uh, Senator Clinton was testifying when she was running for president. And uh, I had the camera way up like that, and she actually looked up at it, wondering what it was. So um, I'm sure they see it. I don't know if uh, FBI Director Comey saw it, but I'm sure other witnesses have seen it. I got to ask you. Yes. What's the strain on your arms, and how long can you take it? I've thought about that. I mean, I, I don't work out that much, but I try and stay in shape. I would say probably two minutes before I'd really start to feel like one of the sound guys with the booms out. Um, and the shake matters because? Oh, yeah, because the shutter speed is probably, I'm shooting at 200th of a second at F4. Um, this ISO is right around 5,000, so going to make sure the shutter speed is correct, the f-stop, not too much depth of field, just enough. But if you're shaking, all that's off. All that's off, yeah. I mean, there's times when I've definitely tried to hold it, you know, to my stomach, waiting and waiting, because I, I don't want to bring it up until they come in and then know that, okay, now I've got it up there, I've got, I, can't, I can't shake it all. And in ways you couldn't do five years ago, you're able to transmit from here. Yes. Oh, yeah. I can transmit directly from the camera. Thirty sec after I hit the button, you know they have great Wi-Fi in here. I can use my Wi-Fi in my pocket if I need to, and I can transmit straight from here right to the desk. And that's what I did for that hearing. Something that people may not fully appreciate: the hours of preparation that go into a split second. Yes. Yeah. And I think, as Scott Applewhite from AP always told me. Chances favor a prepared photographer, and there's nothing more important than preparing for your assignment. Days, sometimes weeks, but certainly the hours before. Get here early. I'm one of those people who, if I'm supposed to be here at 7, I'm here at 6. And I'm trying to make sure that I don't leave anything to chance that it's going to not work. Experience matters. You know, you realize things that can go wrong, and you prepare for things that could go wrong, and sometimes they do. Coming up in this special edition of The Takeout, where we really talk about White House photography, we go back to what can only be described as a seminal moment in American history, 9-11. I was with President Bush on that trip, on that day, but so was Doug Mills. And Doug Mills was actually in the classroom when President Bush was notified that that second plane had crashed into the World Trade Center towers. More on that when we get back. It was the most incredible day, of, you know, of my career, really, shooting, because um, I stayed with him the whole day. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to this special episode of The Takeout. You know, one of the things that's worth remembering about 9-11, and there are so many things to remember, is how ordinary that day began. Not just for all of us, but for President Bush. Our conversation about that day and what unfolded after that with Doug Mills begins with him remembering how that morning dawned in Sarasota, Florida, and how extraordinarily ordinary everything looked and felt. You know, we were in Florida. The president spent the night in Florida. He got up and went for a jog early that morning, ran a couple miles on with a Dick golf Kyle. course. Yeah, with Dick Kyle. Very good. Yes, he did. And we, um, 
waited for the president to run. He jogged by us and said, hey, I'm feeling great. I'm going for another mile. He went around again, another lap, and then got back. He showered. We took off to the school, the elementary school. It was education week. It was no child left behind. So as we were going over in the motorcade to the elementary school, um, Gordon Jondro, who worked for the president as a press uh, lead, um, was sitting up in the front seat of the van and his flip phone at that time rang and all of our beepers started going off. Again, this is before a lot of cell phones and he got on the phone and he said, well, how big is it? You know, and we were, what do you mean how big is, you know, we were just overhearing him speak and he said, okay, thanks for letting me know. And he said, hey, I'm turning around, I just want to let you guys know there's been a plane crash in New York City. Don't know how big, we've been told it's a small plane. Um, just so in case that comes up in the rest of the day, it's not going to throw us off track here. Everything's all set. Scheduled to go back to Washington that Scheduled day. That was back. day two of a two-day education exactly. trip to Florida. That's exactly right. So we uh, talked outside the classroom before we went in. Gordon said, hey, haven't heard anything else. So I think we're good. We went into the classroom. Like any other presidential visit to a classroom, the children were very well dressed and very, you know, behaved. The president was going to read a story to them. The teacher read a story to them. And that started on. And then, lo and behold, I looked over at the door, and the door opened up, and um, the chief of staff, um, Andy Card, walked to the door. I said, wow, chief of staff's walking into the classroom? Very unusual. Extremely unusual. So my radar went off right away. Hmm, Andy. So, and I had known Andy Card from when he worked for Bush 41, and this is Bush 43. So... Uh, I looked at Andy and I was like, what's up? And nothing from him right away. You could tell he was in very, very intense, a lot on his mind. And I did it again, what's going on? And he gave me a, a two. I didn't know what two meant. No idea. So I thought, okay, we'll wait and find out what two is. So I'm keeping my eye on the president and he's talking, they're reading. And all of a sudden, Andy kept getting inch closer to the president. I thought, oh my gosh, something's up. Something's going on. He's going to come over and say something to the president. So he walked over, bent down, whispered into the president's ear. And you're... I was taking pictures, and I'm thinking, what is going on? And you're on? holding the shutter. You're just going yeah, continuously. Yeah, shooting digital. Yep, probably. Uh, well, the cameras were nowhere near as fast as they are now. Now I could have probably had 20 frames of that. You know, I probably had four or five, you know, maybe six at that. Um... And so realized something's going on. And then when he stood there and then the chief of staff left the room and the president of the United States was sitting there with that look on his face like, oh my gosh. Yeah, he was completely distracted at this point. It wasn't, I know he was criticized for sitting there for so long. When I was in the room, it never felt like it was that long. He was obviously thinking about all of those briefings, everything that had happened, everything that he had been warned of. Um, that was ever a possibility was going down. And it wasn't until we left to go to New York City to ground zero a few days later that Andy Card came back on the plane with the president. The president was speaking with the reporters. And I said, Andy, you got to tell me, what did you tell the president? And he said, well, I told him, Mr. President, a second aircraft has just hit the World Trade Center. America's under attack. And then he walked away. And that's what two meant. That's what two meant, a second airplane. We, had, we knew about the first plane crash 
we didn't know that a plane crash had hit the World Trade Center. So from there we went, you know, into that room where you were, where they were doing the, the next event. And um, it was the most incredible day, of, you know, of my career, really, shooting, because um, I stayed with him the whole day. And I was working for the Associated Press at the time. And uh, they whittled the pool down from 13 people traveling with the president on Air Force One down to five. Uh, it was an AP reporter, uh, AP uh, photographer, myself. Uh, and Compton of ABC. And Compton, ABC reporter, and a CBS cameraman and sound man. Yeah. And um, so that was it. So we spent the whole day with him. And um, I'll never forget, you know, we went to Louisiana, we went to Nebraska, then we flew back to the White House. and made that turn around the Pentagon. It was still smoldering. We had an F-16 fighter right off the wing, so close on the wing on Air Force One, that one of the, one of the um, uh, stewards on the plane came over and said, Doug, you gotta come see this. I was like, what? He says, you gotta come over to the other side. And I went over to the other side of the Air Force One, looked out the window, and there was this F-16 on the wing, so close that you could see the pilot's face. And he looked over at us, gave us a thumbs up, off he went, and luckily I took like two or three pictures, you know, before he peeled off. And um, most incredible day. A few days later, we went up to Ground Zero, and um, another day that I'll never forget. We were on the uh, heli. We went by helicopter. Uh, I happened to be on a helicopter with members of Congress, including Hillary Clinton, sitting three or four people down from me. She was senator at that time, and. Um, we were, we hadn't been up in the air maybe 15, 20 minutes and started to smell like the helicopter was on fire. And um, it's like, oh my gosh, something's burning. You know, and everybody starts looking around. What do you, you smell that? And everybody said, like, yeah, yeah. So then finally we asked the Marine, do you smell that? He said, oh yeah, it's fine. He took his helmet off. He said, that's, that's ground zero. We're 20 minutes away and that's, that's the, the smell from ground zero. That's how bad it smells. Wait till we get closer. And we were like, oh my gosh. So then we flew in, you know, to New York and landed and uh, met with the governor, the mayor, who was Giuliani. Uh, Pataki was the governor, Mayor Giuliani, and then um, the president went straight, you know, to ground zero with that you, blow horn. You've seen a lot of well-scripted, well-choreographed presidential events in your life. Was that? Furthest thing from it. Um, that was about as unscripted as they get because there were so many people at ground zero at that point, so much security, so many firefighters, everybody who wanted to be there. You know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of passion there, a lot of, you know, just American, you know, just pride. Everybody wanted to be there, even though you look and you see all the windows had been blown out. And um, we, the advanced person, Bruce Anka at the time, who worked for President Bush, uh, was trying his damnedest to get us anywhere he could, and everybody was holding us back. You know, they were like, no, you can't, you know, no press. I mean, we were literally crawling through the crowd to get up, and then, Bruce, we got up there and said, the president is over there, he's standing on a fire truck. It's like, I, I couldn't even see the president. What do you mean standing on a fire truck? When we got over there, we could see this fire truck was, you know, now, two or three feet tall. It completely smashed it down. He said, he's, he's standing right there. He said, we're about to leave. And that's when everybody started cheering. 
Then the president went up on, stood up on the on the fire truck with that firefighter, and he and then the president got on the blowhorn. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you, and the people and the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Totally unscripted. Somebody had an American flag. They handed him an American flag, and he stood up there and held that American flag. And I, I get chills right now thinking about that moment and that picture because um, it was an incredible time in this country. To our radio audience, thanks for rolling with this very different kind of program. I know it imposed a few more restrictions than no, you had to really imagine or go on the web to try to find many of these photographs. And the good news is you can find almost every one of these pictures we've talked about. So I know that takes a little bit more effort, but I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with one of the best White House photographers ever for the podcast and CBSN audience. Take out Outtake Especial on the other side of this break. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial on this very special conversation with Doug Mills, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times still photographer, and really the dean of the White House press corps, not just among photographers, among writers, broadcasters, everybody. Because he's experienced, knowledgeable, he prepares, he sees, and in the moment can find exactly the right way to tell a story with just one picture. This particular story, Nancy Pelosi, new House Democratic majority, Speaker of the House, and Donald Trump, State of the Union. Yeah, the Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Nancy Pelosi clap, yes. Um, the Pelosi clap has uh, went viral also, um, and quickly. I was the pool photographer for the New York Times on the uh, House floor that night. And, and what I want to point out to our audience, that's a relatively new development. It is. Photographers on the actual floor of the House. Correct. When I first started covering State of the Union addresses in the early 90s, that was not allowed. Correct. Everyone was still up in the gallery, and that was that. Yes, that is true. It is a, I think we... They've probably been doing it now for 10 years, maybe, and it's on a rotation uh, with news organizations. And it took... But you see the president walk down, the president, whoever the president is, you're right in the middle of that sort of scrum, you hear the noise, you see the handshakes, and then as a still photographer, there are moments... That are history, yeah. And it, that, the, the amazing thing about being on the floor is, one, it, like you said, it's never, it hasn't been done and just started, you know, this process just started being done 10 years ago or, or a little over that. And you're the only news photographer in the country on the floor. You're chosen to do this. There's a lot of pressure on you. I had a number of my colleagues rib me about it because it was the first time I'd, or excuse me, sorry, second time I'd done it. First time was with AP, second time for the New York, or my second time was with the New York Times. But it was the second time I'd was on the floor to do this. I took a lot of ribbing. Don't mess it up. You're the only one down there. And so you do feel that pressure to not miss a moment. And again, it's not taking your eye down from the camera. And I, I, you're also listening as a still photographer. That is, I think, is incredibly important to listen to what the president's saying. Because what he says affects people around him, and especially in a State of the Union. You go back to the Joe Biden picture. It was something that President Obama said. This picture was something that President Trump said. Started talking about unity and getting both parties together. 
and that Nancy Pelosi was not going to let you know give him that moment. And when he started talking about that, I immediately thought about what's the speaker going to do? How is she going to react? And she did, and he turned around, which you know made it even better. And when I shot it. Um, I immediately gave the disc. We have a runner down there who takes the disc up to the editor. And I sent our editor, Marissa, a text. And I said, there's a hell of a picture coming. You won't have any trouble finding it. And she said, I hope it's that moment where there, you know, where she, and I said, it is. And lo and behold, you know, it was, you know, it's definitely a memorable moment. And it's, it just goes to the relationship between those two, too. It goes back to that Oval Office you know, where they got into that argument in front of us. And they have, their, their relationship is, I think, been far more public than most presidents and speakers have been, for good or for, for worse, you know. And so I think that says a lot about those two right there, their relationship also. There's a lot going on here. And what's fascinating about this particular picture of President Trump is he's not the central character. Exactly. And you don't even understand visually what his reaction is. Right. It's not important. Right. You see the vice president, and his hands are very important in this picture. Mm -hmm. Because he's giving what he would regard as the proper clap. Correct. <laughs> yes. The respectful clap. Mm -hmm. Yes. Nancy Pelosi is giving her clap. Yes. And then this look on her face reinforces the clap. And most pictures involving President Trump, he is A, the central figure, and B, the most important emotional component of the frame. Absolutely. You're right. He's not you here. You're right. And yet it is among the most memorable photographs of his presidency. It is. Yeah. It's um, he's definitely not the center of that, but everybody knew. And then, you know, of course, I was thinking when she did that, um, what did it mean? You know, like, what is she trying to say with that? You know, and then the more I looked at it behind the camera before I shipped the disc, it's like, oh, she was really getting at him. She was, you know, this is something that she's done to somebody else before. Is this, and so many of your other photographs, try to convey the unspoken dimension of power, how power speaks to one another, mm -hmm. how power communicates through gesture or eye contact or appearance? Yeah, that, that would be the, the uh, perfect you know, image for that because there's a lot of power in that image. I mean, those three are the most pe powerful people in Washington right there. And there's a lot being said in her eyes to him, the vice president, yes. The president looking back at her, yes. That, that says it all as far as, you know, the power play in Washington. And um, she was trying to get the upper hand there. Doug Mills, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Majors. My, my pleasure. Many thanks to Doug Mills, the New York Times, the White House itself, President Trump, and every president, Doug Mills, has had the opportunity and the privilege to photograph. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio.
If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.